Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. Well, Cam, we're going solo this week, so the question is, what are we talking about? Yes, sir, we are. Yes, sir, we are going solo. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We are tackling 1951's My Favorite Spy, starring Bob Hope and Hedy Lamarr. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, we are. I can't wait for you to come to the Brown House. Yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) When I said that out loud, it sounded way more like a euphemism, but I'm okay with it. (laughs) Did you catch on at one point? Someone said, how now, brown cow? And it just gave me Avengers flashbacks. I didn't get that flashback, but now I have, and I wish I hadn't. Thank you for that. Was that like a saying back in the day that people dropped in spy movies a lot? I don't get it. It's so weird. It's it's kind of one of those things that's like in the same realm as, you know, the, the rains in Spain fall mainly upon the plane. Yes, sir. And there's like a retort. Yeah, yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, well, before we talk about, I don't know, our initial connection to the film, let's just quickly read out the letterbox.com synopsis and i say quickly because it's very short Mm. my favorite spy a burlesque comic doubles for a spy in tangier and meets the spy's girlfriend who is also a spy (laughs) that's amazing they didn't even have a tagline in there like you know i don't know this season's sexiest comedy or something like that like (laughs) (laughs) Bob Hope will whistle your way into his into your hearts. Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> uh, I mean, the the uh, the IMDb one's a bit more fleshed out. Do you want that as well? Why not? Roll it. Okay. We've got the free time. Let's do it. Yeah. I'm usually reading the second paragraph by now. A burlesque comic who resembles an international spy is recruited by the government and sent to Tangier to retrieve a sensitive microfilm before it's captured by hostile foreign agents. Sure. <laughs> Why not? I mean, it, this movie... It doesn't even mention Hedy Lamarr, that one. She's it not even doesn't. That. It doesn't. And that is a crime unto itself. But, um, you know, I mean, and this is the case for all comedies. This isn't specific to My Favorite Spy. But a lot of these movies, it's really just kind of a clothesline to hang jokes on. So, yeah, that pretty much explains the premise of a comedy that pretty much thrives on gags. Sure. Well... We usually talk about our original connections with the film, but I can make it very short. I had no idea this film existed until you said we should cover it. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So, like, I really didn't have much familiarity with this, but not so long ago, I watched a documentary called Bombshell, the Hedy Lamarr story, um, that's on, I think, most streaming systems. I I think if you, you know, search for it, it's pretty easy to find on Amazon Prime or something like that. I don't even know. But, um... I watched it and just became really interested in her as an actress because I, I, I had no familiarity with her other than sort of allusions through fictional characters. I know she was the inspiration for Catwoman in the Batman comics. Um, they That was um, one of the primary sources they looked at when creating that character. I know Anne Hathaway um, studied Hedy Lamarr movies when she was going to play Catwoman in Dark Knight Rises. So it was more like the name of a star I was familiar with without really being exposed to her work. And so watching this documentary, I found her very interesting. And uh, I've sort of since delved into a handful of her movies, but this was one I hadn't seen and I thought might be interesting just for an entry to kind of talk about her and her work in this film and what have you. It's interesting. We, we found the uh, inspiration for the Joker in Conrad Veidt. And now we have the inspiration for Catwoman with Hedy Lamarr. I'm really looking forward to the inspiration for Mr. Freeze. Or we go, or we like start doing like um, <laughs> something like the Little Rascals because the inspiration for Robin is there. <laughs> sure, let's do it. Let's do it. Rascal Hearts. Yeah, I'm done for that. I'll be Alfalfa. I'll start pointing my hair up in the air. I've never seen it or heard of it, so I'll be anything you want me to be. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, so. I mean, we will tackle Hedy Lamar a little bit more in the episode. You've told me some stories about her. She sounds quite fascinating, but again, I had no information about her myself. I'd never heard of her, nor had I really heard of Bob Hope. Sorry, Americans. Mm, Yeah. I mean, any connection for you? Bob Hope is an American icon, um, important in many ways historically, just for his USO tours through the Vietnam War. He's 
somewhat of a legend and you know hosted the oscars several times his comedy was uh very influential he popped up on tv all over the place in the 50s 60s had a very successful film career did a lot of movies with bing crosby and i've seen almost nothing that he's done um he's someone who's just never really i don't know that a lot of film fans like myself have a lot of connections to bob hope uh He's someone who's comedy, and we'll talk about it more when we actually talk about this movie, but I feel like it hasn't, it just doesn't grab maybe modern sensibilities the way that some other comedy styles do of the time. The other night I was watching uh, Bringing Up Baby with my parents, and like the comedy in that is like rapid fire and hilarious, and like we were laughing through the whole movie. And I'm a big fan of the Marx Brothers from the 30s and 40s, who, again, like there is just a propulsive rat-a-tat style to their comedy. And it just feels so inventive and just go for broke crazy that it really does grab me. There's a lot of comedy like that from these various older eras that still work, really works for me. Whereas like Bob Hope, limited exposure. I'm more aware, honestly, with spoofs of him. You know, The Simpsons has done the odd spoof where he's like, holding a golf club and doing the growling noise, things like that. Um, and I was aware of like clips of the Oscars, but I've only seen one Bob Hope movie and it was called Caught in the Draft. Um, and it was about uh, his character being drafted into um, the military during World War II. And it was sort of a, a drafting comedy of like basic training, right? Of him and some kind of screw ups in training. And like, it was a fun movie. I enjoyed watching it. It had some genuinely amusing set pieces. But it wasn't a movie that when I was done, I was like, I need to watch more of this man's work. Like the Marx Brothers, when I watched Duck Soup, I was like, I got to watch all these guys' movies. Like I love their comedy style. With Bob Hope, I don't have that as much. I am I do feel guilty about not watching some of the Bing Crosby Bob Hope movies because I've just heard so many references to them. I hear filmmakers talk about when they're doing a buddy cop comedy or something or just a buddy comedy on the road, they'll be like, oh, I want to do a Crosby Hope type movie. So maybe that's a gap I need to fill in. I mean, over there, you know, in Britain, like, is Bob Hope a name that jumps out at all? I, I might be the wrong person to ask because generationally, he's probably a few generations out from someone I would have known even growing up. It, his particularly prominent era seems to have been the 50s and the 60s when it comes to film. And I was watching... 70s and 80s films mostly when I was growing up so it wasn't really for me anyway but from what I've looked into he never really came across the pond yeah it's just very much rooted in a lot of Americana I mean even in World War II he's out there doing USO tours and he just has this kind of legendary status that I mean living here in Canada I don't think I've ever heard anyone really mention Bob Hope other than say like my parents making the odd comment about you know, seeing him on a TV show or something like that back when they were in their, you know, younger years. He's he's definitely the kind of guy I could see hosting a variety show. He has that mm -hmm. kind of like holding court thing about him where he does attract everyone's view on it, the gaze onto him. He wants that center of attention feeling. But um, yeah, as I say, I had nothing. And uh, this is my first experience. And he did talk shows as well. And you can see that sort of talk show style where it's these sly quips, but it's not like a Groucho Marx running in circles being crazy. It's the sort of thing that would transition very well to like sitting at a desk, interviewing people and throwing out jokes, like kind of that Letterman sort of style. The witty banter that we share. Sure. Yeah, we're no Bob Hopes. We're a Bob Hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perfect. <laughs> Well, here's hoping you have some background information on the film cam. Fire away. Oh, I have plenty. So Bob Hope, as you said, is a box office force at this point, a comedy you know, icon of his time. So he's making lots of movies. He's cranking them out like crazy. And they snapped up the rights to an unpublished story by Edmund Boulogne and Lou Breslow. Um, their main credits, Edmund Boulogne had written a movie called My Favorite Brunette which actually starred Bob Hope, as well as The Lemon Drop Kid, another Bob Hope film. So he had connections right there. And Lou Breslow was just a longtime writer. He'd written many Hollywood films. Not a lot that grabbed the attention when you see them on a list, but he had done some Abbott and Costello films. So these two put together a story that I guess just kind of went really nowhere. And the story was called Passage to Cairo. And at a certain point, 
it just got picked up as a Bob Hope vehicle. So um, two writers came in. Um, one of them was Edmund L. Hartman, who was a writer-producer, and he had written The Lemon Drop Kid for uh, Bob Hope. And they also brought in Jack Sher, who this was his debut um, screenplay effort. He would go on to work on Shane, the really classic Western, as well as a lot of other films. So like across the board with this film, it was veteran writers. I mean, Jack Sher, it's his debut, but he goes on to be a long-term Hollywood guy. So it's all very prolific writers ultimately working on this film. Um, and in the initial story, the character was first conceived as a school teacher who was sent to Cairo after impersonating a gangster. So the whole comedian aspect, um, I would suspect was added after Bob Hope was attached to this story. Originally, it would have been a school teacher. So maybe you would have picked someone maybe like a Jimmy Stewart or something like that. Like someone who could play the everyman versus what you get here with the peanuts white character, very much the Bob Hope persona. And as I said, this movie was originally going to be called Passage to Cairo. They decided to change the name because Bob Hope had made a couple movies in 1942. He made one called My Favorite Blonde in 1947, My Favorite Brunette, which I referenced a couple minutes ago. And so they thought, well, let's make this the third in the trilogy. We'll call it My Favorite Spy You'll have a certain amount of brand recognition there. People see Bob Hope, my favorite blank, and that'll sell itself. That was sort of the gist of it. It doesn't. I understand that it follows the continuity of my favorite blank starring Bob Hope, but like the first two were about colors of hair. It's not like it was my my favorite sandwich or my favorite firefighter. It was <laughs> you know persons. I mean, I think this was more of a marketing concept than a... Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is also the days where sequels... It, you can't even call this a sequel. But back, this is back in the days where sequels were very much diminishing returns. So I would suspect it was just entirely name branding. People would make the mental connection and buy a ticket because they'd seen Bob Hope in a movie called My Favorite Blank that they enjoyed. That's about as far as it goes. I don't think they were even writing it with that in mind. Okay, fair enough, I suppose. I mean, if they changed the script to whatever they want and then made him a comedian as well, they could do what they want on the stage. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they brought in a director, Norman Z. McLeod, who had gotten his start with early Marx Brothers films. He did Horse Feathers, which is one of my favorite all-time Marx Brothers films. And he'd gone on to do a couple films with Bob Hope, including The Pale Face, which I'm sure has aged very well, and Roads to Rio. And um, he would do a, a couple more works with Bob Hope in the future. So... McLeod was sort of near the end of his film career at this point. He would transition into TV shortly after. But ultimately, when you've got early Marx Brothers films to your resume, not too shabby. So he made his mark for sure in the comedy world. Also not near the point of sort of a career decline was Hedy Lamarr. She'd had a very prominent career in Hollywood. She was a hugely buzzed about movie star for quite a long time. But, well, Scott... When you are an actress who is sold as being the most beautiful woman in the world, aging is not something that 1950s Hollywood was interested in. And so she was facing a lot of struggles. And we'll talk more about just her career. But she had had a movie in 1949 called Samson and Delilah, which was kind of the biggest hit of her career. And um, it's probably her most enduring film, I guess. It's, it's up there. I suppose it was one of the biblical epics that was, you know, that type of film was very popular mm -hmm. at that point in time. But um, she would only do a couple really movies after this. And um, she had wanted to work with Bob Hope for a while. She thought maybe his star power would help her kind of continue her career and, you know, stay in the public uh, limelight. And she had mentioned wanting to work with him as far back as 1945. Now, Bob Hope, he was down for having Hedy Lamarr in this movie. He thought this was a great idea, and he aggressively pursued her for the role. So she said he was showering her with gifts and attention. Um, Bob Hope was not taking no for the answer. And I guess at this point, she wasn't actually coming to them about the project. She had just referenced in the past she'd like to work with Bob Hope. But um, she obviously felt like this was a really good career move was to sign on for this movie. But um, Bob Hope was uh, very, very um, persuasive, I suppose, in his efforts to get her to sign on. Now, well, did you did you see his vaudeville act? That would convince me any day. <laughs> he showed up dressed as a clown for all the uh, moments where he was throwing gifts at her. He hid in my shower. <laughs> uh, so Hedy Lamarr had a couple issues. This was a Paramount movie, and she was quite unpopular with Paramount. 
She had done a movie called Copper Canyon um, just uh, a little bit before with Ray Milland. It was a Western. And she had refused to do a personal appearance to her for the studio. Um, I think she was just burnt out on the promotional circuit. This is like, what, 15 years into her Hollywood career or something like that. I think the novelty had kind of worn off. And she was also at a very, um, a bit of a tumultuous point in just her personal life. So it kind of probably wasn't that appealing. So she was in the bad books, but Bob Hope said, hey, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll clear this up. And he was able to get her signed onto this film. Um, his main uh, direction to her was, I'll bring the comedy, you bring the sex appeal. And she was told that her primary direction in the movie was project sex. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, that's our uh, modus operandi. I'll let you guys at home decide who's who in that equation, by the way. <laughs> Neither one of us is projecting anything, so <laughs> we're not good at taking direction, apparently. <laughs> and so Hedy Lamar saw the finished film, and she wasn't thrilled. Um, she said all of her best comedy bits were cut, and she was so unhappy, she refused to promote the movie and go on tour. <laughs> so kind of the outcome was that Bob Hope was really angry at Hedy Lamar for not promoting the movie and never forgave her. And she never forgave Bob Hope for editing out all of her best moments. Was that Hope's choice? Yes. Yeah. Bob oh. Hope is like very much the, uh, the big kahuna in this situation. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, kind of an unhappy situation or at least an unhappy outcome to this film. But nonetheless, it earned $2.6 in the U.S. So it was a hit. In terms of the uh, worldwide box office for the year, number one was Quo Vadis, which was a biblical epic at the time. A very popular movie. If you ever see the Coen Brothers film uh, Hail Caesar, there's a lot of scenes where George Clooney is acting in a old Roman epic, and it is very much evoking Quo Vadis, like very strongly. And for Spy Hearts fans, you might want to check this movie out because uh, Peter Ustinov, who popped up in One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing, played the Roman Emperor Nero in uh, Quo Vadis, and he's amazing. It is a full-blown, insane performance. I've watched this film. It's a ton of fun. I mean, is there a fake accent and a fake mustache involved? Uh, he's wearing a beard and a toga. Um, I don't think he's... So am I. <laughs> I don't think he's doing an accent, although he may be doing a little bit of that quote-unquote old-timey accent actors would put on in period pieces. Sorry, could you just give us an example of this no, old-timey accent, No, I can't. Accent, I can't at all. <laughs> but I would say, like, it's kind of that vaguely British kind of thing that you would often see. No matter where the movie was set, they would be vaguely British. <laughs> He's gone that way, officer. He looks vaguely British. <laughs> um, number two for the year was David and Bathsheba starring Gregory Peck, which was another biblical film. I have never heard of this one. I think I'm going to track it down, though, because uh, these old-timey biblical epics are they're pretty fun to watch, actually. And uh, number three was Showboat, an adaptation of the musical starring Ava Gardner. So, like, ultimately, this movie was successful. It wasn't, like, a massive blockbuster, but it was successful. And Bob Hope actually also this year had The Lemon Drop Kid, which was being shot before my favorite spy but was released the same year just before my favorite spy and and also performed decently so decent year for bob hope as for hedy lamar she retired in 1958 just seven years after this film so this was near the end of her film career and we'll talk more about her going forward but that sort of sums up the behind the scenes on my favorite spy well we've definitely set the table i think now we need to find out if this is our favorite spy film um as this is your pick, Cam, I think you should give us your thoughts first. Oh, boy. Okay, so my favorite spy <laughs> is the sort of movie I feel like my mom would refer to as cute. You know what I mean? Like, it's mm -hmm. totally a trifle. Like, it's a movie where it's coasting on the charisma of its two stars. And um, we have this sort of very workable scenario where Bob Hope has to impersonate, you know, kind of this evil spy. and kind of go through these various scenarios where he's basically a bumbling fool trying to get through espionage moments. And in terms of just keeping my attention, it, it totally worked. I, I thought it was fun. It was breezy. Um, I enjoyed the chemistry of the two leads. And there's some fun scenarios here. Was it a laugh riot? No. 
Um, I would say that I laughed few and far between through this movie. It was more like I just kind of was amused at the lighthearted energy of it. Um, it is a movie star showcase, though. So it feels like it's from that era where you would buy a ticket to this movie to watch two of the biggest stars in Hollywood just project what they do best on the big screen. And I'm not going to speak to whether this is the greatest Bob Hope comedy of all time, because I think people more educated in Bob Hope comedy can comment on that. But for me, like, I, I'm pretty sure he's more inspired in other films. And, you know, Hedy Lamar kind of brings glamour and sort of an exotic um, style to this film that I think is really, really helpful. Like, I think you could have easily cast someone who is, like, if you cast like an ingenue in this role and just had Bob Hope bounce off her the whole time, it wouldn't work. I think it's the fact that you have these two statures of Hollywood opposite each other that maybe even elevates the material. Because I could totally see this movie happening with two lesser stars and it would just be kind of a forgotten B movie versus something that we are actually talking about on Spy Hard's podcast. Well, I want to discuss what you just said, but I think it's probably best to get my initial thoughts out of the way on this one, just to set it up a little bit. So, you know, like some people don't like hearing nails on a chalkboard. Mm. Right. And like for me, that version of that is like styrofoam. When you rub it against styrofoam, it makes a horrible squeaking noise. That just winds me up. I mean, have you got something similar, Cap? I'm not good about chalk on a chalkboard. That always drove me nuts as a kid. That's a strange one, but that's your thing. That's fine. <laughs> well, it turns out I have a second one, and that is whatever Bob Hope is doing at any time in this film. Because <laughs> he got on my fudging nerves, I have to say. There was nothing about him I particularly liked. I found his entire gimmick to be just annoying. And that was really hard to get past to sort of look into the film. Luckily, when Hedy Lamarr turns up, it's better. Yeah. Because at least he's not playing himself for a while. But that stuff at the beginning where he's doing the vaudeville act and then he does that little song and dance number at the end and all that, that gimmicky stuff, it drove me up the wall, I have to say. But I didn't, to sort of what you said earlier, I didn't really feel any chemistry between them, which is one of the things that held me back from this film. Like, you, as you say, they're two big stars. You would think they would work well together. And you said they wanted to work together. But I didn't really feel that energy between them. And and Bob Hope annoyed me. Uh, the spy plot was fun. I, I think there was problems with that too that I'll get into. But, you know, I, I really didn't enjoy this experience. I get it. Like, the thing was, throughout, I would kind of just smile at sort of the Bob Hope energy. And there's very much a comic persona there. And, we, you know, for example, look at the now, right? Um, a character like Adam Sandler in his films. There's a lot of people who are like, I can't stand Adam Sandler. I would never want to watch any of his comedies. I think that's kind of the case here with Bob Hope, where it's a very specific comic persona. If you don't like it, if it doesn't gel with you, you're not going to find him entertaining to sit through this film. And for me, I never found him funny. It was just kind of like more of that, I don't know, I, I guess sort of the ironic distance he brought to it was somewhat fun. Just the idea of this guy who's kind of just bumbling through a scenario, but also commenting on it at the same time. He often breaks the fourth wall. Moments like that. Again, it feels a little bit like almost like a talk show host um, working their way through a movie like this. And it's why I kind of struggled with the movie in terms of it being a comedy. Because generally when we're going to recommend a comedy to someone, it's because it's going to make them laugh. And it's very hard for me to argue that my favorite spy is going to make you laugh. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see what you said about, the, about your mum thinking about this as well. I can actually see my mum really enjoying this film. But then I think my mum's a simpleton, so I don't know. <laughs> but my mum would be like, it was cute as in like, yeah, it was fun to sit and watch for 90 minutes, but I'm never going to remember anything about it 30 minutes from now. Sure. I just, I, for me, as you said, the comedy didn't land. The spy plot was okay. I mean, my problem with the spy plot is, I mean, to just generally set it up for people who are listening at home who may not want to actually watch the film. Um, Bob Hope's character of Peanut White is mistaken for this international man of mystery who's taken down by the police and then they decide to put him undercover as this man, send him off to Tangier 
to meet up with Hedy Lamarr and uh, obtain some microfilm for the US government and bring it back home. However, during the film, the the international spy, Eric Augustine, uh, escapes hospital and comes back to Tangier as well and is very quickly dispatched. I thought there was probably a bit more fun there to be had if they had him in the film more and had two Bob Hopes. That I would have thought would be better. I totally understand that point and I suspect this maybe had to do with budget. Just having two Bob Hopes run around gets quite complicated technically as well as if they're going to try to show the two of them on screen at the same time uh i just don't know that they were going to pay for that especially you know you think of like 1951 technology of trying to make that work Mm. if you did it now it could totally work but there was points where um well when he finds the body of you know his doppelganger the evil doppelganger and it's very clearly not bob hope (laughs) yeah i I mean i the version I watched wasn't exactly high definition, but even then I could see it was clearly just some guy not even dressed the same. Just It was just another white guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, one bit did make me laugh, I have to admit, is, is when he's initially mistaken for this spy, Eric Augustine, and for some reason the FBI, I assume, have a full-out, full-on printout of this guy to match people up against. That's like the weirdest <laughs> police thing I've ever seen in my life. They <laughs> just unroll it from the seedling, like, hey, there he looks just like him. That's a that was a strange little gimmick there. And it's like life size as well. Yeah. Like, where did they yeah. get this printout? Did um Eric Augustine, this ruthless evil spy, stand for a photo like that so that they could create this life size poster? It's a very strange choice. It's the sort of bit that like I mean, look, there's no shortage of these sort of mistaken identity. Um situations happening in spy comedies you know you could say that north by northwest did it somewhat as well it's obviously a little more complicated in that film but same kind of idea of you know cary grant being mistaken for a spy Mm -hmm. here i think they really missed out on one element of this which is that the eric augustine we see in the film played by bob hope there's no real comic value to that character like he's just kind of a bad dude like they didn't make any effort to give him any sort of comic persona well would you have he's he was the bad guy technically like he shouldn't have been funny he was meant to be this serious killer but can't you make the villain fun like i think you completely could they play him actually very blank i was like oh okay like sure i think bob hope is meant to be the comedy in the film i should say but peanut white is meant to be the comedy no one else is meant to be funny that's true which probably stands up to the whole thing of hedy lamar scenes being removed as well it is literally peanut is the funny person and everyone else is super serious well and it's like um you know bob hope said when he was talking to hedy lamar i'll bring the comedy so it was very much built around this entire film is going to function as a you know basically a vehicle for bob hope comedy and I just would love to know what an audience like watching this movie in 1951 is like responding to. Like for all I know, people were roaring through this movie, but it's, it hasn't aged. I feel like particularly well, uh, even in relation to other comedies of the fifties, you know, put on some like it hot and an audience now will still be laughing through that movie. Uh, My favorite spy. I think a lot of people would sit there going like, I don't really understand a lot of these jokes because <laughs> that's how I felt. He had a number of quips through this movie where I was kind of like, okay, like I don't really get that. I wouldn't say it dates itself that much for me. I mean, there's one joke about, you know, he's not my president. I voted Republican and stuff like that, that you'd have to know who was in the office at that time. So that, that dates it for sure. But uh, I, I just feel like sometimes when I'm watching older films, you just think, is this what entertained people? Yeah. Like, you know, one of our dinosaurs is missing. The second time this film is referenced in this, this movie. But in 1975, that must have been entertaining for some people. And apparently, Bob Hope was entertaining for some people. Well, and I, when I say dated, I don't mean in terms of, like, the content of the jokes, as in it being, you know, period-specific jokes you wouldn't understand, but more in the sense of, like, the rhythm of it, the pace. And just, like, if you're going to do this type of movie, I would think now or even honestly in the 30s screwball era, it would be much faster paced. If you drop like a Marx brother in this movie, the jokes are going to be flying a lot quicker than they are here. Like 
my favorite spy has a almost leisurely pace to the comedy where it's just kind of these tossed off quips here and there that doesn't really carry you through because you know going in and it's very evident early on that the spy plot holds only so much intrigue and so you are relying on sort of this you know uh comedy commentary to carry you through the experience and for some it's sort of like gentle humor that'll get them through the end okay and for others they'll be like i, don't, I just don't understand a lot of these quips like they just aren't funny yeah it's just when i'm looking back on some of these older comedies now i was just thinking of uh, rodney dangerfield for instance and you know like aladdin references him when genie says i can't believe i'm losing to a rug and he does the whole funny face and pulls his collar uh, that joke kind of lands because he's referencing an old thing but i don't think i could watch a whole movie of rodney dangerfield jokes oh, back to school is pretty fun but yeah i mean comedy is always pretty heavily tied to its era a lot of the time you do get those timeless comedies that endure those are the special cases but for every there's something about mary well for every you know some like it hot from the 50s there's countless my favorite spies that were you know reasonably popular people went and saw and then Mm -hmm. forgot and that'll be the same for all the comedies happening now you know the odd one will stick around but most of them will vanish and you know you talk about the genie impersonating rodney dangerfield the genie also impersonated bob hope in that 1992 film which i'm sure that that really cracked me up when i was 11 years old (laughs) What does he do? I don't remember, but he does show up as Bob Hope in in the film. Fair enough. Well, I I do want to talk about some of my favorite bits of the film, but I know you want to talk a little bit more about Bob Hope and Hedy Lamarr. And I know you've been doing some research on Hedy, I believe. Yeah, well, sort of after that documentary, I watched Bombshell, which again, I recommend people check out. I picked up this book. uh, It's called Beautiful, The Life of Hedy Lamarr, written by Stephen Michael Shearer. And it's a pretty exhaustive account of just her life in Hollywood. And the documentary Bombshell delves a lot into Hedy Lamarr's um, scientific um, background, where she was sort of a self-taught inventor, um, someone with no real formal education in the sciences, but had a real knack for learning quickly. Like my guess is, if you were to test Hedy Lamarr nowadays, she was probably like a genius level IQ. And everything you hear about is how quick on the draw she was, how she would think way ahead of a lot of other people in the room. And she started doing inventions fairly early on in her career. And so she worked on the equivalent of what we would think of as like, um, you know, the dissolvable powders into drinks. Um, She was working on um, it's kind of like, you know, Mio powders or whatever, crystal light packets, things like that. And she was working on one for a cola that didn't really pan out. She also, um, thanks to Howard Hughes, helped redesign airplanes. She decided, you know, that it would make a lot more sense to model his planes on fish and birds. So he gave her a team and they, you know, altered the way they were designing planes at the era to make them more aerodynamic. But her most prominent scientific achievement was during World War II, she had been reading reports about how the um, enemies were cracking the codes for um, torpedoes, radio-controlled torpedoes. And she really wanted to help out, so she kind of had this idea. Her first husband was an arms manufacturer, and she said she'd sat at all these dinners, and it's just soaked up all this knowledge, which I think you could sit me at a table with these people, and I wouldn't soak up anything. So clearly this woman's a lot brighter than I was and am. So she got together with a musician friend um, named George Ann Thiel, who was a experimental musician at the time. And they came up with this technology called frequency hopping. And they used um, basically a piano. You know how you could set up a piano to pre-program it to play music Mm -hmm. by running those chords? They came up with this idea that the signal would hop between various frequencies so that an enemy could not jam the signal. Because, you know, you always see, Scott, we're Star Trek fans. How often do they talk about we've got to rotate the, the shields and things like that? That was the general idea of this technology. And so they took it to the military, into the Navy. And the Navy was kind of like, well, that's nice for you. Good for you, Hollywood actors, for coming up with some ideas. And she had patented it, but the Navy just kind of took it and was like, sure thing, go go away. And she was trying to as well um, get into the uh, inventors group to help with the war effort. And uh, the government was like, good for you. Why don't you go on a promotional tour and sell war bonds? That's probably more your role. 
And so her technology just kind of sat in the archives for a long time and was ignored. And then in like 1957, they started using it and they used it sort of slowly and surely in terms of Navy communications. And it just began to evolve. So it what she created, the signal hopping technology, become the basis um, for like Bluetooth technology, Wi-Fi, communications between ships, satellite communications. So like Hedy Lamar and as well, you know, George Antheil, her um, you know, um, co-worker on this project, had a very significant impact on the way we live. And she made nothing off of this. Um, the patent just kind of lapsed and the Navy used it quietly afterwards and never gave her any credit for it. And it wasn't until like later in her life that um, she was inducted into the um, National Inventors Hall of Fame. That was actually after she passed. That was posthumously. And in 1997, she was the first woman to win the Inventing Oscar, which is an award given out by the Invention Convention. And it was for her efforts creating this. <laughs> Sorry, I was just laughing at the uh, the invention convention. That's just the best sounding thing I've ever heard. Isn't that great? <laughs> Honey, I'm off to work. Oh, where are you going? The invention convention. <laughs> so it's just like, I find her a fascinating case where you wonder what could have been. Like, she was a successful actress and um, she worked, you know, a lot for her, you know, time period, as with so often, you know, so many actresses of that era. They just kind of stop working in the in, once they kind of get to around their 40s. And that's entirely the way the studio system worked in that era, was phasing out actresses once they got to a certain age. Very cruel reality for actresses of that era. And even nowadays, to a certain degree, um, things are slowly changing. But there's limited roles for actresses of a certain age, even nowadays. So she very much fell victim to that. But clearly someone that was, you know, just judging from the book and the documentary, a force of will just in terms of personality. So, you know, her life was not easy. It was often very chaotic. You know, there was six marriages. She did not get along with studio heads. She, was a, she had a very dominant personality. And later years were pretty unhappy. A lot of just lawsuits, scandals, just general depression, probably issues like that. So fascinating figure. And I'm just curious, you know, I was not that um, aware of her filmography not so long ago. I'd seen Samson and Delilah. That was about it. And since then, I've watched films like The Strange Woman, which is really good, and uh, The Dishonored Lady. But not a lot. I watched also Algiers, which was kind of her breakthrough. But Scott, you said you'd never really heard of her. Like, I can kind of understand why. Her filmography is not held up. And it, it really makes me question the movie stars of today, 40, 50 years from now, how many of them just completely fade into obscurity? See you later, Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I would like to see more of her. I actually would probably go out of my way after this to see more Hedy Lamarr films, maybe some of her better ones, because she was probably my only saving grace in this entire film. She, I, it's interesting that she was too smart for the room that she was in because she seemed like she was too smart for this film. Yeah. Um, it just felt like she was punching down. A little bit. Um, maybe that's what didn't lend to the chemistry for me. Because, you know, you've got Bob Hope just dancing in circles, looking like a prat, while she's just sitting there going, yeah, but, you know, the microfilm, the world's going to end. Can we get on with this, please? Mm. Mm. Yeah, it also, the whole Bob Hope is the comedy and no one else is, it doesn't work that great with her because I think we want to see her be funny. And she's done comedies, so it's not like this is an actress who can't do comedy like she was capable of doing it. Um, primarily it treats her the way that a lot of films did, which is maybe why her work hasn't aged spectacularly in that they used her for really, her big thing was her close-ups and the fact that um, the costume designer, Edith Head, did like the majority of her costumes through her career. So like, if you look at reviews of the time, they would just be commenting on what is she wearing? How does, how, what is the glamour she's bringing to this movie? And it feels like that's what they're doing here. They're like, put Hedy Lamar in like amazing dresses and put her on the screen and Bob Hope can kind of run in circles and be silly. Well, I mean, she's billed as, and I quote from IMDb, the most beautiful woman ever to appear in films. Mm -hmm. And that was what she was known as, I mean, in the 50s at least. 
even before. That's how they actually sold her initially in her career when she first came to America, because she was a um, born in Austria and had Jewish ancestry, and she had to escape once you know the Nazi Germany was rising, so headed over to America in 1937. So that was how MGM sold her to audiences. Was the most beautiful woman in the world. I think it goes back to what you said earlier. If she had been acting today, I think this would be a very different story. I'm not even sure she would be acting. I think she would be working at NASA or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I get it. She's a stunning lady, but I think it, there's some scenes, like one of my favorite scenes in the film is probably the biggest set piece, which is the fire truck yeah. escape. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can tell she's got some chops. Like she knows what she's doing. She's acting really well in that scene. And then you've just oh, got Bob Hope screaming. Um, oh. But yeah, that that's a really great scene. And I think stuff like that shows that she had more range that we than we saw. Yeah, like they're using her a lot for just kind of romantic appeal through the movie. Like mm. it's not hard to sell an audience that Bob Hope would be uh, won over by Hedy Lamar. Like we're, we're with the movie. We understand the point it's trying to make. And I mean, it's a lot of like, this is very clearly a movie star. Like she looks like a movie star the second she shows up on the screen. You get that moment where she's in the back of a car and the way she's revealed is like holding her hand out to light a cigarette that Bob Hope is, has in his mouth. And it's just mm. showing her hand. And then the camera runs up her arm to kind of showcase this movie star that they have in their picture. And yeah, I agree with you. Her driving in the, um, well, everything to do with them dressing as firemen and going down the poles. not Those are the moments I wanted more of. Or also even... Mm. Later in the film, she has a fight scene with Bob Hope where she's really angry at him and is chasing him around a room, like kicking him and throwing things at him, smashing him over the head with like a vase. To me, I'm like, this is actually funny. I was actually chuckling at a couple moments of that whole sequence. I wish we had more moments like that. I know we're talking about things we liked, but that's one of the critiques I made in my notes was this is like boggy section in the middle. And that's where most of the spy plot happens, funnily enough. It's where the whole microfilm comes into it. It's where the exchange happens. But the lively parts of this film are the beginning and the end. And they're the bits that kind of get you through it. But um, it's interesting that the best bit is the bit that has the most amount of Hedy Lamarr in. Yeah, you can feel the energy sort of sag once she disappears in that middle section. Because she shows up early on, Mm -hmm. makes quite an impression on the film. You get like a musical number with her. You get a dance number with her and Bob Hope. Like, it's all working. It may not be laugh out loud hilarious, but there's a chemistry there. At least I I noticed, I felt the chemistry there. Um, And the movie just kind of feels a little more alive. The problem is, and it's something that I think grates on me with a lot of comedy that falls into a genre so if you're making kind of a wacky comedy that is a spy film and this isn't just reserved for spy films i would say the same about you know buddy cop films or any other genre you're kind of putting your comedy in when you start to focus too much on the details of the plot the comedy starts to unravel so in this case i have this wacky vaudevillian comic played by bob hope going undercover as a spy Perfect setup for comedy. Sure, I can have him just cracking jokes and being funny throughout this movie. But there's a certain point where we start to focus a little too much on the ins and outs of the spy plot, and it's very convoluted. There's a lot of players who are being bounced around all over the place. And I like going to different settings, like the casino, for example. But in terms of the details, they begin to get a little overwhelming where the movie's becoming convoluted. Whereas I think it's better just to keep it fairly simple and just play up the comedy instead. Like, the audience doesn't genuinely care about the spy plot. No, not when you've had 20, 30 minutes of, you know, Bob Hope's vaudeville comedy act. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the Bob Hope show, and then he becomes this serious dude, which isn't really in his wheelhouse. Um, and as you say, you've got all these other players that you're not really sure who they are or their names. They're just kind of there. Uh, and then, like, there's this whole subplot of Hedy Lamar potentially stabbing him in the back, but then she comes back around later that I'm not sure I really followed. Um, yeah, I, I on my second watch, it was a very tough watch, I have to say, because I knew the boggy bit was coming, and so I was just sat there waiting for the exciting bit to happen again at the end. Should they have played her character as a little more of a femme fatale? Like, I never doubted 
that she was a reasonably decent human being. Like they set it up with the two of them, um, you know, hitting it off very quickly in the back of this car. They're making out by the end of the car ride. And there's all these kind of romantic overtones. They're dancing together. I never got the sense of like, she's going to turn into a villain by the end of this. So you're kind of just waiting for the plot convolutions to stop because you know, it's a Bob Hope comedy with Bob Hope and Hedy Lamar. It's going to end with the two of them probably happily ever after. I'm not sure what turning her into a femme fatale would have done for the film to change the middle bit. I think that's where my problem is. Yeah. And I don't think that would have done anything to it. What would you, how would you have changed that? I guess it's tough if you're not going to make her any sort of convincing villain, it doesn't work. So mm. I guess what they kind of do is create conflict between her and um, this other character, Brubaker, who she is reporting back to played by Francis L. Sullivan, um, maybe make her a little more caught in the middle. But again, now what I'm doing is making it more plot-focused, which I don't think that's what it needs. So it just felt like, ultimately, when I walked away from the movie, it needed to boost her up in some way. And the fact she's saying they cut her best comedy bits tells me that they'd shot more comedy with her. And so maybe that's just what it needed. It needed more moments of her getting to do fun, memorable things maybe while the plot's happening around her as well. I think the other thing this film suffers from, uh, I think we've abandoned good moments and we're just on critiques now, which is fine, um, is what I would call the Condor Man problem. Okay. Where you have a person who becomes a spy, but wasn't a spy, and then is, and then just becomes very good at it all of a sudden. You know, he, he didn't want to be a spy. I say he, Bob Hope, Peanut White, didn't want to be a spy. Uh, he just wanted to go back to his vaudeville act and then he gets to Tangier and amazingly it basically goes without a hitch until he needs to get out. I don't know that he's a good spy though. I, I give a lot of credit to his handler, uh, Tasso, played by Arnold Moss. It feels like this character is the one doing all the heavy lifting, um, kind of kicking Bob Hope in the butt from scene to scene to get him into the right situations. Yeah, maybe, but just like... I'd almost would rather have seen him struggle through these things in a comedic way instead of having the um, the Tasso character like reel him in every time, because you can see like the like say for instance when he gets the message from the fortune teller, and he's flirting with the two girls just before, and you know Tasso's like get rid of him, you need to focus on the mission. Whereas I would I want to see him try and like balance off two girls at the same time. Sure, and and that seems like it's more fun than the whole trying to get the message thing and, and Lamar's dancing around him. The comedy's in that scene with the two women, not the spy part, which is weird because we do a spy movie podcast, but the fun stuff had nothing to do with the spy stuff. Well, you want a little more, I think, fish out of water comedy. And like, yeah. I like the bit where he ate the sandwich with the uh, card in it. That kind of made me laugh when Hedy Lamar is very desperate to get her hands on that sandwich. That That was a good little beat, but... One thing I noticed, and maybe this is an issue we have too, when you're saying that he was a little too competent early in the movie, like right at the start, they're training him on how to be a spy. And one of the things is, is that, you know, Eric Augustine is this, um, you know, um, very brutal character who has a way with the women, they say. They really build that up. And so they're like, you know, clearly, you know, Peanuts White, you need to also have these skills. And basically what happens is just this like woman agent takes him into an office and just kisses him a few times. And the whole thing is, she it's so stupid. But the kiss has to be so amazing that it tears nylons. Literally, like, there's a tears going up nylons while they're kissing. That's what he has to be able to do. And so this happens. They walk out of the office. She nods to her, you know, male co-workers. And is like, yep, he's got it. So you're like, really? This character doesn't have to struggle for anything? Everything's just kind of handed to him. I mean, that's how I was initiated in spy school. I don't know about you. <clears throat> some some lady pulled me into the closet, said, kiss me till my nylons go. And well, I, I gave it my best shot. <laughs> What's actually funnier about the whole nylon thing, which I still don't quite understand, is obviously he passes that test and then he goes to Tangier and meets Hedy Lamar and talks and, and has that kiss that you just mentioned. But then... Apparently, he's wearing nylon stockings, and they rip instead. Okay, I think that that is a joke that maybe an audience now doesn't understand. But I think in the time, the joke is that any man kissing Hedy Lamar, it's his nylons that are going to be ripping. I, I think that's what the joke is, yeah. 
I, I get that joke. Yeah. I'm not an idiot. Well, I am, but <laughs> I got that joke. But my question is, when did men wear nylon stockings? I'm wearing them right now. And you look very fetching, but that's a that's a whole other thing. Sadly, though. they have no tears in them. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Bob Hope's just not doing it for you, buddy. Nope, nope, clearly not. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you know, you know, if people in the I don't know the the forties and the fifties men wore nylon stockings, let us know. Uh, I I didn't think they did. Was it nylons or was it just really high socks? Like, did men wear high socks in that time? Well, I mean, has anyone kissed you and your socks ripped? Uh, not yet, no. <laughs> but I emphasize yet. <laughs> Challenge accepted. That's right. <laughs> I actually thought that gag of the nylons riffing, while bizarre, it actually did get a laugh out of me. And it does pay off in a great way where they're in that barrel at the end making out and then suddenly the barrel bursts open because the heat, mm. the passion coming off of these two actors. <laughs> There's a shot I saved of that image. Of them go both going back into the barrel and Bob Hope just sort of rolling his eyes like, Oh, here we go again. I just thought that's such a that's such a that's all folks kind of ending, you know? Yeah. Just need the Looney Tunes music to play us out. Uh yeah. This is this is funnily enough, actually, I did think of you when I was watching this bit. Um because I want to get trapped in the barrel with you too. Um No, because you know, we spoke about recently uh the house on ninety second street yeah. a couple of months ago. And you said, is this what you pictured when you were talking about old films and being kind of worried about them? And I said, yes, this is also another example of things I was worried about. Mm. Like, it's all just a bit too hokey. Like, one of the things I had a problem with is that this was all set on a soundstage. Like, it's clearly all set. Are you saying they didn't go to Tangiers? (laughs) I'm sorry to tell you, Cam, they did not go to the Tangiers. Bummer. Um, yeah, that I know. It has that old-timey feel. To me, I don't mind the whole back lot feel. That has a certain amount of uh, nostalgia for me, just in terms of watching old movies. But it was, to me, more just like the sort of the relaxed pace of the comedy. That's what, to me, felt a little tougher. Because, like, I just have a hard time imagining, like, showing this movie to someone who was younger and them finding a lot of humor in it. It's kind of like, oh, okay, cool. Seen this done better in the years since, you know movies like the Melissa McCarthy spy film, or there's a lot of spy comedies out there, top secret. These types of movies have just done this sort of scenario a lot faster and funnier and with a little more invention. This doesn't feel like it's the all-timer Bob Hope comedy. So, you know, it's kind of like that mid-level kind of movie that just doesn't have as much energy as it probably should. It's it's strange because like, it's it's not this isn't going to be a, a disavowed entry. No. I can tell you that ahead of time. It's not bad enough, but it, I, I mean I won't spoil my knockless thoughts. But like it, it's not great either. It's just so middle of the road. And I personally found Bob Hope to be quite grating, so I was just left cold. Was there any moments that made you laugh? Because it is a comedy, and I will say, like I didn't laugh a lot in this movie. I'm just curious if there was any moments that stood out to you as like genuinely getting a laugh from you. You're thinking a long time about this. This is very worrying for Bob Hope fans out there. I well, I I did start the film off with some high hopes. Uh, that's when you saw uh, Peanuts White for the first time, and he's cutting his name out of the sign of the vaudeville act he's doing and putting it on top and saying, "Oh, a star is born." And I just kind of laughed at the whole thing, trying to make yourself look bigger than you are. And then he obviously gets arrested for it. But I did also make a note down of what his clown name is okay it's boffo yes that's right boffo yeah so i i did have a question for you if this did come up what's your clown name oh my god um is it provo provo cam provo smith i'm taking provocateur and trying to turn it into a clown name and oh yeah i'm kind of failing miserably but sure i'll go with provo Provo the Clown. That sounds right, actually. That sounds like an act. I I wouldn't go and see because clowns scare me. But sure, uh, yeah. I'm not. I don't really have one for me. I don't think I. I maybe I just use Tiberius. That's a, not a good clown name whatsoever. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think I'd be a very good clown. I couldn't see myself in the mirror without running away. By the way, you know, you referenced Tiberius. That's a Star Trek reference. Um, did you catch the other Star Trek reference in this film? A actor who appeared in this film had a very prominent role in the original Star Trek. No. 
Okay. And it pains me to say that out loud. So Arnold Moss, who played his handler Tasso, would later play Kodos in the original series episode. The Executioner. Yes, Kodos oh. the Executioner in the original series episode, Conscience of the King. So um, He was the guy that ran Kirk's planet when he was younger, right? And he escaped. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, Kodos yeah. executed half the half the population as a way to, the food. Yeah, to save yeah. resources. And uh, that episode's a whole tribute to Shakespeare, but uh, that is who that actor was. Yeah, so it popped out to me when I was watching it. It's so funny. I saw him and I thought, I do know you from somewhere. And this is this is not me trying to win points back. Trust me, I don't care what you think of me. But um, yeah, I just could, I I didn't look on his IMDb. But wow, that's a such a strange connection. That's that's so cool. Yeah. Um, I now like this film a tiny bit more. <laughs> And, uh, sir, I just wanted to circle back to that whole sequence at the end, the stunt sequence on the uh, fire engine, which I actually thought was Mm -hmm. remarkably good because the movie did not set me up for a really, really strong set piece. While I enjoyed the fight with Hedy Lamarr and Bob Hope, it was, you know, fairly small sequence within the, within the uh, context of the film. Whereas the engine whole finale, I thought was actually really strong. I was wondering why we didn't have more bits like that throughout the movie. Like, why is the movie 95% Bob Hope quips with like this thrown at the end? Why, like why not have some more really grand set pieces throughout the movie? Cause I think it would have actually done a lot for the energy level. Um, you had a moment there where Bob Hope is like stuck in a tree and Hedy Lamar circles around within this fire engine and the ladders like held up way high in the, up, in, up in the air. And he like grabs hold of the ladder from the tree and like goes flinging out of the tree I burst out laughing. That was the funniest moment of the movie for me. And I will just say, stunts throughout the sequence, fantastic. Yeah, that stuff looked really good. I was It actually picked me up because I was quite down on the film by that point. I was like, oh, they're actually outside in the real world, driving around an actual location somewhere, which was nice to see. It had like a Buster Keaton sort of energy where it's like that physical comedy. There's actual stunts going on. And... There are stuntmen used several times through this movie. Every time Bob Hope goes to do a pratfall, the camera cuts and you see clearly a stuntman take the fall. And those are clunky. But within this sequence, I thought it worked really well. I, but you are right. That like scene where he grabs back onto the ladder and like goes warp speed onto like <laughs> down the road. That that did make me laugh. That, that's probably my only other laugh I can think of. You're right. That was hilarious. I don't even know if it was supposed to be as funny as it was. It was just like them clearly hauling. I guess a dummy out of a tree at like a hundred miles an hour or speeding up the film or something. It just looked hilarious. You also got the really funny scene of Hedy Lamar trying to, she's trying to bring the ladder back down and just rips the the handle out and just kind of shrugs at the camera. Like, ah, yeah, that's one of those fourth wall breaking things that you do get, which was, I, I suppose a choice. Was that something they did in those days? Yeah. You would see people doing fourth wall breaking the Marx brothers, especially Groucho had done that for sure. And it was something that was kind of a standby of comedians of the era. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I'm putting it in order for a life-size pull-down version of a photo of me. But in the meantime, Cam, did you have any thoughts about the film? Any final thoughts? I have a few I want to just touch on. Um, We've touched on, I think, the big moments in the movie, but there's a few elements I'd like to just ask your thoughts on. One is Bob Hope has a thing about growling. He does it a lot through the movie. Um, did it ever make you laugh? Like, did it ever amuse you in any way? I think it was one of the parts that actually wound me up. <laughs> really? He's like constant, like growl and then whistle. Like, it was like a twitch. Yeah. He would just do it at the end of his sentences. And it's just like, what on earth are you doing? As if you have to fill the silence. It's such an era too, where like, and it's not reserved for Bob Hope. If you were a comedian, you had to have some sort of catchphrase or something that you would work mm. into your routines constantly. And, Audiences loved it. Like they ate that sort of stuff up. So it makes sense to me why he's doing it. It, I will say it did make me kind of laugh where he's like kind of muttering to himself and then looks in the mirror and does it at himself. That kind of got a (laughs) laugh out of me. But yeah, it was the sort of thing I was like, okay, a little bit goes a long ways. Um, Another sequence I found disappointing because we're talking about the fire engine being really successful. There's a scene where him and Tasso wind up in a camel costume and I was like, oh, this is actually going to be really funny. Like, this is a setup I find very amusing, is this really bad camel costume. And it's kind of fun to watch them stand next to real camels and look really ridiculous. But it didn't feel like the movie did as much as it could with this really dorky camel costume. Well, he did get to make out with a real camel, at least. Peanuts, baby. Hot and salty. (laughs) 
Oh God. <laughs> well, I, I suppose if we're mentioning weird moments, then I, I, I will finalize my thoughts with this. What did you think about the whole truth serum incident? Because it, for those keeping track, we have another truth serum in the spy film. Tick. Um, yeah. Did you did you like that scene? I found the whole act to be a bit blah. Yeah, where he's doing like Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. He's doing Hamlet, Cyrano de Bergerac. Um, I thought it was fine. Like, I appreciated the energy he was bringing to it. Like, Bob Hope was very invested in making the sequence work. Did it make me laugh? No, but I admired just that he was really going for it. And, you know, when he's got the candle on his nose, like Cyrano de Bergerac, I thought that was kind of amusing. But you and I have seen the truth serum thing a few times. We saw it in True Lies. We saw it in Jumpin' Jack Flash. I would say it was not as successful as in True Lies. That one's really funny. Um, Jumpin' Jack Flash? I might actually side with this one. I think this might have been funnier overall than the Jumpin' Jack Flash truth serum. I would only side with this one because I can't remember the Jumpin' Jack Flash truth serum scene. I will say like one bit that I thought was sort of fun to watch, if not hilarious, um, was the bit where he first goes to Hedy Lamar's apartment and she's like, you know, make the type of drink I like. Make the music that I like on the piano. And like, I like all the setups, but it felt like the payoffs weren't as funny as they should have been. You actually reminded me to ask you a question. I didn't write it down, but was the joke of that scene that he didn't know how to play piano and then magically learnt it? Or that, like, because he looked at the piano as if he was worried about playing. Because obviously he's not Eric Augustine. But then he goes over there and starts, you know, playing the boogie woogies or whatever she said he was playing. So, I mean, could he play? Or did he just know how to do the type of music that would be popular in, like, um, burlesque calls, which was what he was familiar with? I, d- I didn't get it, whatever that joke was, I have to say. I-, I will say I was very amused by its depiction of burlesque calls, where it's like, it's just all these guys sitting there just, like, staring at the stage while he's, like, in a clown suit doing bad comedy. I'm like, what a weird world. 1950s, so fascinating to me. And and it's, it's strange because some of the physical comedy in that scene was quite fun. Like, you know, making the hammer on the, the sort of hook on the wall and I don't know, some of the clown stuff was kind of cool. Shooting the jacket as it was moving along the floor was kind of funny. But I couldn't imagine watching an hour of that. <laughs> like, as a stage show, I think I would walk out and ask for my money back. So you're saying you're not going to, uh, after this recording, to start watching Bob Hope comedy specials on YouTube? No. <laughs> I was going to come up with something funny to say, but no, I really am just not going to watch that. Um, but on that note, I think we should pivot over to the knock list. Mm-hmm. Um, Cam, is this your favorite spy film? No, <laughs> uh, it is not. It's totally painless. In terms of the things we've watched, there's been movies I found far more egregious to sit through. It's one of the movies, though, one of the very few that... About the hour mark in, I thought, oof, this one's a little rough for podcast fodder. In terms of conversation points, they're not giving us a whole lot. And I'm hoping the old comedies don't all do this, because I would like to tackle more 1950s, 1940s comedies on the podcast, because I think there's a lot of very notable ones with notable stars. I mean, this one has two huge stars of their time, um, so I'd like to tackle more things like that. Uh, I think there are more fun ones for us to, you know, review in the future, but hopefully they give us a little more than this one did. I just found this one really thin, really thin. Yeah, I don't need to make a big song and dance out of it, but uh, yeah, this one's a no for me, obviously. Um, It misses the key element of a comedy film for me, and that's comedy. (laughs) Yeah. And also kind of the stuff that's the spy plot which is meant to be your sort of anchor for the film, isn't particularly interesting. It's a shame because from all intents and purposes, Bob Hope and Hedy Lamar were stars from what you told me. So you would think they would produce a better film. Well, on the bright side for Hedy Lamar fans, we will be tackling her other film, The Conspirators, her other espionage film. So that is on the list for us to cover sometime in the future, made earlier in her career. So it's not a one and done for Hedy Lamar. Hmm. Well, there you go, folks. My Favourite Spy was not our favourite spy film. Two no's from us means it is not making the knock list. As we acknowledged earlier, this is not a disavowed film. And, you know, overall, it it wasn't like an egregious film. It didn't 
didn't like hurt my feelings to watch it. It was just kind of so middle of the road that I'm not particularly excited about ever seeing it again. I think I would be fine if I never did. And it's 90 minutes, so that made it extra painless. But you watched it twice. Like, what was the uh, effect of watching it twice? I went into the second viewing with a lot more sort of trepidation. Yeah. Because I knew it had that real sort of sinkhole moment in the middle where it, just all the fun's gone. Mm. Not that there was much fun for me anyway, but there was at least some. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that stuff, I I have to admit, I was looking at my phone and just not really present. Did the spy plot feel extra, you know, kind of cumbersome the second time through? Yes, because there wasn't any tension to it because I knew what was coming. Yeah. And it wasn't like it's one of those spy films that you could sort of say, well, now you know the ending, you can go back and watch and see all the little seeds that it planted throughout. There's no seeds. Mm-hmm. There's no overarching story. It is a spy plot wedged into a comedy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so by the looks of it, my favourite spy is not making the knock list. And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Um, and then what have we got coming up next week, Cam? Oh, we have a big one. We are meeting back up with Sean Connery and we are tackling 1965's Thunderball. I'm really excited to talk about this one. Uh, It's my go-to Bond film every year on my birthday. So I have a lot of affection for this movie. It's crazy, it's big, and it has sharks. That's all I ask for in a Bond film. I've got my swimsuit ready and I've got my harpoon gun. So let's hope uh, I get the point. Mm, Indeed, indeed. So there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out 1965's James Bond Sean Connery film, Thunderball, and join us next week. You can, of course, follow us discreetly at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, there's a lot of peanuts in that boy.